0: I am in love with the idea of aging because I feel like I owe it to my son and I owe it to my husband to age and to age as well as I can, to age as enthusiastically as I can, to be as in love with my body as I can be, to be as in love with whatever's going on with the weird laugh lines around my eyes. Because I'm not who I was when I was 35. I'm a better person than I was when I was 35. I'm better than I was at 44, and a lot of that I think is just aging. And a lot of that I think just I've, I've learned a lot, but I've learned mostly to never take life for granted. This is the
1: AgeWise Podcast.
0: Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down.
1: I'm Jana Panaritas. This episode of the AgeWise Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp the largest online counseling platform worldwide. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. So unlike traditional therapy, you don't have to drive to get there or sit in a waiting room, a real plus for caregivers who are always pressed for time. To get 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com agewise. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash agewise, A-G-E-W-Y-Z. In July of 2015, Palm Beach Post entertainment columnist Leslie Grace Streeter was married and in the process of adopting a baby boy with her husband and love of her life, Scott Zervitz, when tragedy struck. In about 90 frantic seconds, as Leslie wrote, her 44-year-old husband, Scott, died of a heart attack and Leslie became a widow. Her incredible love story and the aftermath of Scott's death is the subject of Leslie's memoir, Black Widow, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title. Besides her popular column for the Palm Beach Post, Leslie's writing has been featured in the Miami Herald, Modern Loss, and elsewhere. She's also written for the stage. Her funny and smart Christmas play, The Gift of the Mad Guy, has been featured by Annapolis, Maryland's Building Better People Productions and others. But today, Leslie is here to talk about her memoir, Black Widow. Leslie Grace Streeter, welcome to the H Wise Podcast. Thank you. Before we get into the book, I want to talk a little bit about your background. In your book, you wrote, So much of my story might be considered all American if not for my high melanin level, which is such a provocative statement in a good way. Tell us about growing up in what you've called hood adjacent Baltimore, your parents and your twin sister.
0: Well, I grew up in Baltimore City. As you mentioned, I do have a twin sister, Lynn. Um, It's just the two of us. So people would always ask, Well, what's it like to be a twin? And they were incredibly disappointed all the time by my answer because, as I say in the book, we're not psychic or in porn. So <laughs> um, it, it just, you know, we weren't that interesting. And I think that people were like, well, what do you have to compare it to? Which is nothing because I only have a twin. I don't have any other siblings. So I have no other sibling relationship to compare it to. So it was just kind of like being normal. I mean, I will say that it's sort of, and no one wants to hear this because it sounds very psychological, but the fact that I understand that the two of us were raised by the same people at the same time with the same parents at the same time in their lives. So it's not like my mother and her youngest sister, there were five of them, and my mother is 14 years older than her youngest sister. Mm -hmm. So her, even though she was raised by the same parents, they had completely different experiences right. growing up in that family because of everything. And my sister and I had the same experience at the same time, which I think is kind of remarkable because we remember stuff the same or close to the same as much as any two people remember something the same. Or there's no, oh, mom and dad were so tired by the time they got to me, they were just like, just take this stovetop stuffing and shut up kind of thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know. So we both got the same fairly young and energetic first-time parents, Mm -hmm. and as my mother said, they didn't always do everything right, but, you know, they did it from the heart, you know, they were Mm -hmm. just very enthusiastic about being parents in this adventure, and even when there wasn't as much money, or they didn't know what they were doing, they were like, ah, that's what you do. Mm -hmm. So I think it's different from, my parents were 24 when we were born, I was 41 when we brought Brooks home, so Mm -hmm.
1: Right. Brooks is, for Your, listeners, uh, Leslie's adopted son.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, he's, I could say, my son.
1: Your son. Um, yeah, yes, that's a good point. Adopted.
0: I mean, he's hes my son who is adopted, but you don't say, That is such is my a great grandson. point. It's something that people who are not in adoption or surrounded by adoption just don't know, and it's not malicious. It's not yeah. trying to get it wrong. It's just you don't know. Yeah. So, and yep. That's a point that people make, particularly if you have natural children and people say, well, these are their children and their adopted son. It's like, that's stupid.
1: Yeah. So your parents sound super cool. You describe living in Saudi Arabia for one and a half years as a great adventure, and it really influenced your becoming a writer. I wonder if you could reflect on that.
0: Well, it's just, I felt like I was going to be a writer. I didn't know what the words for that was. Since I was little, I think that I was good at creating stories. I was good at like being creative and when you're 11, you don't think, I'm going to do whatever for a living because you don't know what to means because you don't pay for anything. Right. But, you know, you're just like, I could do anything because my son, any other day, wants to be a firefighter. Every once in a while, he wants to be a Jedi. You know, <laughs> none of these are things that he's driven to do because of what they pay. Mm-hmm. They just like they seem like cool things to do. So I think that doing something like that, moving where we did at the time that we did And to do it only for, you know, one and a half school years and come right back was not only jarring, but it really makes you think, who am I and what am I going to be? And isn't this a good thing to tell stories about? Isn't this a good thing to write about? And I did. And I started just like, I would write stuff sometimes for me. Also, I think that that's around the age that I started writing for my projects. Like when I was in eighth grade, people would say, oh, I'm going to do a history project where I make a diorama of the Revolutionary War out of marshmallows or whatever. And I was like, I'm going to write a play. And I would write a play. Hmm. And I would do it the night before because I procrastinate. And it would take me all night, but I would hand write on notebook paper a play. And then I would staple it together, draw some sort of cover, and hand it in. And I always got A's on those things. Because hmm. they were good for eighth grader, I guess. Uh-huh. And because I think that possibilities were kind of open, and I didn't know how to do anything else. <laughs> so wasn't good at anything else. <laughs> so, Leslie,
1: you met Scott. Actually, you Scott went to high school together, and yes. you tell this marvelous story about how you guys reconnected. Tell yes. that briefly.
0: Well, basically, everyone gets together on Facebook now. So our class was planning our what was then our 20th reunion. We just had our 30th. But back in uh, the beginning of mm-hmm. 2008, we were planning our reunion for the next year, and we both realized that we had connections to South Florida. I was living here. He had lived here and had gone back to Baltimore briefly. And he emailed me when he got connected with me and said, hey, I'm going to be back down at some point. Do you want to have a drink? You know, I, was, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't into it. I wasn't into it. Mm-hmm. I was just like, okay. And I went back to whatever I was doing. I hadn't seen him in 20 years. And then we went to Boston's on the Beach in Delray, and I was sitting at the bar having a crab soup, that's before I was vegan, and having a glass of wine, and I looked up, and there he was, and I thought, oh, okay, and his eyes are so cute. He had really thick glasses, but you could see his eyes, and I remembered from high school that he had really pretty eyes,
2: Mm -hmm. and I thought,
0: oh, okay, there you go, and then he said, well, I'm going to be here for a little bit, but I'll give you a call, and I thought, okay, great. And I thought, wait, I think I want him to give me a call, which, once again, I had not expected. Uh-huh. But it just kind of went from there. He kind of spoke to my better judgment. Uh-huh. <laughs> because, as I mentioned in the book, I have had bad taste in men at some point in my life. And he was a good choice, which is why I was like, why am I doing this? Well, you, <laughs> if you, this you, makes sense, this you make sense. You
1: also wrote, he's really hard not to like.
0: He, he really, he really was.
1: Um, Leslie, I wonder if you could reflect on introducing Scott to your extended family
0: your family is well, so you know, interesting it's, just, it's the kind of thing that i can't really describe them to people who don't have imagination so it's kind of like and i do everything by movie references or tv references mm-hmm. there's a definite huxtable thing to my family if people are newer tv watchers my family parts of them can be very much like randall the black son on this is us uh-huh. we're very educated we don't Several fools gladly, and if we had to... I've never had to be in a fight, but uh-huh. I've made people believe that I could they mess with me. I can't. I can't fight. But, you know, it's that kind of thing. Really cool people. Like, everyone was very raised in the church, very sort of specific ideas about things. And like I said, when they met Scott, they weren't shocked. They mm-hmm. were just like, oh, who's this? And I had not had a whole lot of relationships that were important enough for them to meet someone. And it had been years since I had actually introduced them to anybody. Mm-hmm. So they were like, Oh, okay. I mean, my parents liked him immediately. My mother said that she was not sure how serious it was, because I was kind of playing it off. And she had come to visit, and she called my dad back in Little Rock and said, this guy's in love with your daughter. Mm-hmm. And he was like, who? <laughs> and she was like, I'm just telling you. Be ready for it. It's the thing. <laughs> and then, like, months later, he and I and then my sister and her then-boyfriend – who she then married, the year that we got married, all went up to Little Rocks and did the Meet the Parents thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was really cool. We had such a good time.
2: Yeah, I bet. I love
0: the pictures from that time. We went to the Clinton Library, and Scott took pictures behind the Bill Clinton desk and stuff. It was great. Leslie, this
1: book is really jarring in a way because it really grabs you right away. It begins the day after Scott died when you're arranging yes. for his burial. You're listening to a pitch yep. from a cemetery salesman. Um <laughs> The tone is set immediately with your wit. This is a quote. Here you are, quote, a black Baptist woman planning a Jewish funeral for her white husband. So tell us what happened.
0: Uh, Well, basically, we had gone with extended family members to have dinner the night before in Boca and came back and he hadn't been feeling well but not like in an alarming way. I mean, I was one point. I was like, "Should we go to the doctor or something?" 'Cause he just saying, "I really don't feel well." You know, men don't always complain. Either they complain like babies, uh-huh. or they don't complain at all. <laughs> so so I was like, "Are you okay?" And he was like, "No, I'm I'm fine." And he took. I remember. I can see him now throwing his stupid habit of like taking pills with no water. He took some aspirin or something, like threw it down his belt, and like that is disgusting. But mm. um. The next morning around 3, he got up to go to the bathroom, and I was getting up around 4, 4.30. I had a story that was due that day, and it was easier to work before the baby got up. So he got up, and he said, Hey, do you want to fool around? I was like, sure. So we were just kissing and stuff, and then he told me that something was wrong, and I turned the light on, and he was clearly in distress. And I go over this a lot. The writing has been helpful because it's helped me sort of not so much remember, but it's helped me kind of piece things together. But it's mm-hmm. hard exactly what to say because I was in shock
2: mm-hmm. and
0: anyone would be in shock. I don't know how people give testimony about things like this because you would have to get something wrong. I mean, I think that our body released chemicals that keep you in shock, mm-hmm. you know. So having said that, I just remember that his head shook and he passed out. I think he died then. I thought he had just passed out. So I grabbed the phone, called 911. It seemed like it took forever. Mm -hmm. Um, He was pronounced later at the hospital. But like I said, I don't know. And they weren't nice, yeah. but they weren't awful.
1: Yeah. There were some awkward moments there. Yes. So There's so much going on in this book. And it's so interesting because it's infused with pop culture references from Sex and the City to Law and Order and Titanic. And this framing of grief in pop culture is really new for me. But, of course, it's totally natural for you because it's what you've been, you've been writing That's about pop culture forever. About. Exactly.
0: It's kind of yeah. like I've read books that are not sports related by books who were sports guys. Mm -hmm. And they write, their references are sports, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Or historians write in historical references, not necessarily framing. But when they make a reference, that's what it is. And what I know is pop culture and movies and music and stuff like that. So I tend to speak in those things because it's sort of like easy references. Also, the older I get, I'm in my late 40s, I find that sometimes if you use kind of a general reference, it's something that people both older and younger will get. When I was first editing it, there were references. I thought, is anyone going to get this? And I thought, people my age will get it. Yeah. And really, that's who I'm writing to. I mean, I think I want it to be for everyone. And I don't think that a Sheila E. reference is really going to throw anybody off. So.
1: Yeah. In Black Widow, Leslie, you write about being, quote, forcibly cut out of your old life on returning from Saudi Arabia, and having no real choice but to find yourself a new one. I thought this was interesting, because it made me think about how you were forcibly cut out of your old life after Scott's death. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah.
0: I think in some ways, all of us, anytime there is a loss, like I know that you have lost a parent or any time that there is a move. A loss is something you move sometimes because you want to. So it wasn't a forced changing. Mm-hmm. But when a parent dies, whether you live with them or not, that changes. You're one step closer to death. My dad died in 2012. And that part of my life of having two parents was over. And that's a thing that happened to me. And Scott's death happened to me. And I say that not in like a gross, selfish way, because when you make someone's death about you, but he's not here to have it be about him, basically just to say that death ends things. Death ends possibilities. Like, there's a conversation in the book I have with a woman who is comparing her divorce
1: oh, yeah.
2: that to, was really to good. my
0: widowhood. Mm-hmm. And I say to her basically that the difference is that her husband, even if she's not interested in ever being married to him again or being romantically involved with him again, he has possibilities of changing his relationships with other people or becoming a better person or whatever. And death ends that possibility because that person's not just dead to you, they're dead. And you didn't choose it. I didn't choose it. And I know that I don't compare my relationship to other people's relationships because I know that like for instance, my friends who are divorced, yes, their former spouses are still alive but they sometimes have to see them with their new girlfriends on Facebook. You know, Mm -hmm. that ain't fun. And that's something I know I don't have to do. Once again, it's not better or worse. It's just different. And there's no real comparison to it because, once again, divorce happens because somebody doesn't want to be married anymore. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen in my marriage. We both wanted to still be married. Just one of us died. So I think that both of those situations, both having moved against my will at 11... And being widowed at 44, I think, do you have the end result of necessary resilience and mm-hmm. a necessity to figure it out? Because it is what it is, and it was what it was and remains what it is, and you can either crumple under the weight of it, or you can figure out what to do about it.
2: Hmm.
1: So Leslie, uh, you've you've written about some of the things that people have said and how people respond to people grieving. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about what you appreciated hearing from people and what you did not really appreciate hearing.
0: That is truly the question that I get from people when I speak outside of grief situations.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Because nobody wants to be the bad person. Nobody wants to say the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And 98% of the time... Even when people screw up, they really mean well. They aren't thinking. What I like, and I've had some people not like this. What I like is sorry for your loss. I've heard that there are people who don't like it because it seems pat. I'm not sure what else you're supposed to say. But there are people, for instance, who say that even saying let me know what I can do is bad because it puts pressure on the grieving person to have to think of something because now the need is put on them to make you useful in the Mm -hmm. situation, which isn't fair. Because often what I like to do is call the designated person, whether it's a sister or a mother or a a spouse or whoever it is, the person that's grieving, and say, what do they need? Because by that point, that person is a little removed, even though they might still be grieving, but they're the point person. So that person is like coordinating, bringing over the chicken. Or, you know, people called my sister. My sister was down here in hours. Mm-hmm. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think we got back from the ER maybe around 630. Mm-hmm. And I think my sister was in my living room by 11 o'clock. Wow. From Baltimore. So she woke her husband up and said, this happened Hand me the credit card. I'm going to see my sister. So she became the point person. So people just showed up at my house magically by plane and train and car and stuff because they would call my sister because I think Lynn sent an email out and said, this is what happened. I'm really sorry. I don't have a lot of time to ease you into it. Here's what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And so if you're coming down, call me. If you need a ride from the airport, call me. If you need to figure out on what schedule people are delivering stuff to the house, call me. And so that long answer to say is check with someone else. I know I do not like, even as a person who is spiritual and considers herself religious, I don't like they're in a better place, they're with God now. Because first of all, you don't know what that person believes. You don't know yeah. if the person, if either the grieving person or the person who died believed that. You don't know the pain that they were in. You don't know anything. Also, I didn't like anything that suggested that there was a better place for him than sitting in my house, because that's where he was supposed to be. And it wasn't like he'd been ill and in pain or in hospice or on life support for a long time. Mm -hmm. It was, he was here and then he wasn't. Mm -hmm. So saying Scott has completed a cycle around the sun was so dumb to me, because it was trying to make philosophical sense over something that didn't make any sense. And it was designed, it's a kind of phrase that's designed to make the person who says it sound smart. And I don't like it. (laughs) You know, so yeah, it's stuff like that. I think that sometimes people want to listen, and I think that if you ask a grieving person, and you know this, how they're feeling, Be prepared for them to tell you, because sometimes they won't. But sometimes, if you're a good enough friend or a family member or whatever, it's just the day that they need to talk about it. And I would say, do you really want to know? Uh If you're just asking to be polite, I'm going to spare us both the uncomfortableness and say, great, better than yesterday, thank you.
1: Move along, nothing here to see.
0: (laughs) Move along, nothing here to see. And I think that... And once again, you understand this as a person who has been through this kind of thing. Anything that makes the grieving person feel that they have to do anything or that they're somehow responsible for how you're doing or that they have any responsibility to make you feel better. When my dad died, I remember specific people I didn't want to talk to because I knew that they were going to be, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. And I didn't have the energy, as I said to a friend who was very upset with me, because I hadn't told her that he was sick again. It was when he was sick again. And she goes, why didn't you tell me?
2: Mm. And I
0: said, because I know as much as I love you, that you were going to be so over the top that I was going to have to feel like I had to help you through my grief Ugh. about my dad
2: dying. Yeah.
0: And that's sort of the thing, and and that was before he had even died and way before Scott had died, but it was the beginning of that feeling of being to articulate in a perhaps brutal but very real and vital way, I cannot be responsible for you, and I am the person central in this grief. So how you can help me is by listening to me when I tell you how to help me. Don't help me the way you want to help me. Help me the way I tell you what I need.
1: After the break, how Leslie's readers reacted to the news of her husband's death and the advice a doctor gave her about how Leslie could help her toddler understand what was going on. Hi, it's Jenna. 10 years ago, when my father died suddenly, my own feelings of grief were put on hold as I cared for my grieving, widowed mom. Every day was a challenge. I felt isolated and anxious. I needed someone to talk to, but like a lot of caregivers, I was so busy taking my mother to medical appointments and filling her scripts, the last thing I had time for was driving to a therapist's office and waiting my turn to talk. Today, I don't have to wait because there's BetterHelp. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist you can start communicating with in under 24 hours. It's convenient, discreet, and more affordable than traditional offline counseling. You know, the kind you have to drive to and wait your turn to talk. To get 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash agewise. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P slash A-G-E-W-Y-Z. Leslie Scott was a regular in your Palm Beach Post column, which was (laughs) that girl. He appeared in photos. He was initially referred to as the gentleman friend and later the mister. Somehow you managed to write about his death in the Post less than three months after he died. I wondered how readers, who you refer to as your other village, helped you through this period.
0: Readers were, and I shouldn't say surprisingly, but, you know, the world sucks sometimes, so Mm. you never know. I really expected more ignorance in the first couple months, and I didn't get it. Hmm. Or it was sent to someone who kept it away from me. So people were pretty cool. This area, obviously, has a lot of older people in it. So I had many, many widows, many, many widowed people reach out to me. Some people who were married and would say, you know, I understand And some people who were not married and say, is it okay for me to call myself a widow? I would say, of course it is. Shut up.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) You
0: know, (laughs) or couples who were gay or couples who like it's complicated was made for them. You know, people who had been married and divorced and married again. And it was a whole situation. I know a couple who was estranged when he died, but it didn't mean that she didn't have all the complicated feelings
2: Mm -hmm.
0: about Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And so when I would talk Mm. to those people, and it would start with conversations, those people was okay to kind of be griefy with because they had their own and they understood and they weren't saying anything to me or trying to get me to feel anything that they had not wanted to feel in that very specific situation.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So... And it's been almost five years. I mm-hmm. ran into a woman recently who I know who lost her partner several months ago. And I ran into her in public and we just cried. We mm-hmm. just cried. I hadn't seen her since then, but we both knew what we were feeling and we just cried. And I think that now I'm at the point where what's helping me through is being able to help other people, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. Mm-hmm. But in the initial time, just people saying, I'm so sorry. Or people saying, here's a picture of my husband, he died a year ago, you would have liked him, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or just people like showing up, like I write about in the book, my friend Libby just showing up at my house and say, I'm on the way to your house, get dressed. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'd be like, I don't want to go. She's like, nope, in the Uber, can't stop the Uber, get in the Uber. And I'm like, no. <laughs> but, and those are people who... I'm very close to and they knew what I needed and they wouldn't have made me stay out for like five hours Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was just like driving around the block But just checking in
1: Mm -hmm. I thought it was really brave of you to post the video on the Palm Beach Post website where you read aloud some of the condolence Uh, notes You received that must have been tough, but in a way it probably helped you heal
0: It really was. I mean when they first said it to me my I was like no Nope. That wasn't your idea. That. No, it was okay. not no, hoo, hoo,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Not my idea. So explain but what
1: we're talking about for people who aren't familiar. What happened there? There
0: was this eventually incredibly lovely, lovely video that was so thoughtful. And once again, the people that I work with are so talented. And all of them were watching me try not to disintegrate before their eyes. So it was really lovely this video of me reading out loud some of the condolence letters that I had gotten. Mm-hmm. And once again, it was not my idea. What I said was, I want to find some way to explain what these people have meant to me. And they said, why don't you read the letters? I was like, no. And they went, why not? And I went, okay, you're right. And breathing through and so many people said, again, people who were widowed said to me, oh my gosh, that was helpful to me. Oh my gosh, you said things out loud that I had not been able to say out loud mm-hmm. about my in loss. So, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: That's really cool. One of the things that was so moving was to read throughout the book your ongoing struggle with what you were going to tell your son and how hard it was to say the words, daddy is dead. The, on the day of Scott's funeral, you took Brooks to the doctor and you asked her, what can I do to help Brooks with what's going on? And the doctor gave you some good advice. Maybe you could share that. And then three months later...
0: Yeah, basically, what I said was: By the way, can I get out of going to this funeral? Which was no. Um,
1: Uh (laughs) On the day of the funeral,
0: on the day of the funeral, I was like, "Can we go?" No, okay. So, (laughs) and then she was like, "He's not yet too. Therapy isn't going to be helpful to him. He doesn't really know what's going on. But you need to be solid. You need to get therapy. You need to stay healthy." In every way, because he'll get his cues to what normal is from you.
2: Mm-hmm. He can
0: read your panic. He can read your depression. He can read your shock.
2: Mm. And,
0: of course, you have those things right now, but you've got to work on them, because otherwise he will internalize those things. And she's right, you know, and I think that going to therapy and staying healthy and trying to make sure that I'm around for as long as possible and positive and surrounded by positive people and just doing things that are helpful to myself and to him, I think that that has been great because he's a very well-adjusted little boy.
1: And how old is he now? Six? He's six. Uh-huh. Brooks. So we have all these ideas about how we should age, how we will age, what our lives will look like when we're older, and we plan accordingly. I wonder how your ideas about aging have changed, if at all, since Scott's death.
0: Oh, my goodness. My, first of all, I have no patience no patience for people who whine about getting older because my husband didn't get to so screw you You, I don't care about your wrinkles I don't care about your it's harder for you to run now and you can't keep up with your kids shut up Mm. you're breathing Mm. you're breathing Mm -hmm. I don't have any patience for it I have friends who are younger than me who go I'm gonna be 40 I'm like I'm gonna be 50 you're still breathing shut it Mm mm-hmm I and it's, it's okay to say, didn't expect this wrinkle, or to laugh about your muffin top, or to laugh about falling asleep at 8 o'clock when, you know, 15 years ago, people were like, we're going to go out at 9, and now I'm like, I'm in the house by 9. It's okay to joke about that. And obviously, there are people who have anxiety about things. I think a lot of anxiety about aging is built around our parents and how we saw them age or how we're seeing them age. So I know that this is not for most people, a trite thing, but I am in love with the idea of aging because I feel like I owe it to my son and I owe it to my husband to age and to age as well as I can, to age as enthusiastically as I can, to be as in love with my body as I can be, to be as in love with whatever's going on with like the weird like laugh lines around my eyes and my slow running and all that other stuff, because I'm not who I was when I was 35. I'm a better person than I was when I was 35. I'm better than I was at 44, and a lot of that I think is just aging. And a lot of it I think just I've I've learned a lot, but I've learned mostly to never take life for granted. Mm -hmm. So to complain about stupid crap, it's like just buy a wig and move on. Uh Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, people frame their grief in different ways, and of course, true to your storytelling roots, you frame it as almost like a Joseph Campbell myth where you the hero goes into the, you know, the unknown, your life is tested by a cataclysmic event, Scott's death, and you talk about the tremors of grief that you experience that are, of course, universal. I wonder if you could offer some advice for surviving the tremors of grief oh, for other folks. First
0: of all... I have to say, I've never been referred to in any sort of reference to Joseph Campbell. <laughs> so that is super cool. I cannot imagine, and I hope this is not super provocative, that Joseph Campbell imagined that he would ever be compared to a black woman. <laughs> Think about it. True. Think about it. Anyway. I just love that because people go, oh, you could be like Lewis and Clark. I'm like, no, not at all. Mm
2: -mm. (laughs) (laughs) No, not a
0: bit." I loved Heart of Darkness, though. I I read it in high school. Yeah. And it's interesting to allow yourself to think of yourself. And in the title of the book, I say a journey for people who don't usually pick up books with words like journey in the title. Mm -hmm. Because I I think the word journey can be super obnoxious. I think depending on what it is, it can be super Mm self-referential. It can be super patting yourself on the back. Oh, look at me. It's my journey. I'm so important. I have a journey. I'm a hero. Here's my art. You know, here's the people to sing my praises. You know, I just, but having said that, there is, I guess, a hero's arc to most people's stories. And I think that in this, the hero has no idea what she's doing. Basically, she's like Robertson Crusoe. She's kind of dropped off on a freaking island, like, deal with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and your journey is trying not to die and get rescued. And I think sometimes you have to rescue yourself. I think that the advice I would give people is to know that it's coming. I just recorded the audio book. And one of the things that I read out loud that was like, oh, this resonates so much still is that you have the understanding that in the middle of grief, that after the funeral, it's not going to stop being awful
2: Mm -hmm. because the
0: funeral doesn't end anything. The funeral just ends that part of it and that you've just dipped your toe into the pool of awful you're just dipping your toe in you haven't even immersed yourself all the way into what life means without that person and not just the emotions but it's the paperwork and remembering you can't call them to tell them about law and order and all that stuff and that you will forever be without that person as long as you're on this earth I don't want to be rude and say buckle up, but buckle up
2: mm-hmm.
0: because it is a long process. And I do not grieve, Scott, in the same way that I did in the beginning because I couldn't. You couldn't survive. You would run out of air and tears. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't mm-hmm. do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And your your body and therapy and psyche and everything moves you through different stages. I also would tell people that the stages of grief were never meant to be cyclical And they weren't really about death. What they were about, the Elizabeth Ross stages, were about the acceptance of people who had found out that they had fatal disease.
2: Hmm. That's
0: what those were about. And they were never meant to be in order. So people go, well, now I'm in acceptance, and now I'm in denial, and now I'm in anger. It's like, I was in all of those things the day he died. Right. Every single one of them. Yeah. And one of the early drafts of the book says that grief is not a ladder, it's more like, a fun house that lost its brakes
2: uh-huh. and you're
0: just kind of like uh-huh. zipping around and you fall through the basement and then something catapults you up and you go back to the other one you thought you'd already been through. Uh-huh. Just but- to expect that it's going to be hard. It's also to expect that some people are not going to understand or approve of the way that you were grieving. And some of them may be your parents or your spouse, if depending on who you're grieving. The people closest to you might want you to just get over it and move on some people may want you to be in that performative grief stage to prove you're still grieving for longer than you want to be or longer than you actually are Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: you got to screw those people and do what you got to do understand that everyone around you is grieving scott's family's grief was different than mine but it was still valid and i couldn't say my grief is more important than yours because that's not fair and that's not a competition it's not a competition and the The thing I would say is it ties back to what you asked me before about what people say to you is that there will be days when you feel awesome and someone will walk up to you and without understanding that they're doing it, punch you right back where you were Mm. and go, oh, you're like, oh, I'm going to go back and cry now. And it's going to happen. It will happen less over time. But also, I mean, I remember going to a cocktail party with this woman who didn't know. So I used to see her, we saw each other at cocktail parties. She mm-hmm. was seasonal. Mm-hmm. So I saw her at a party and she goes, oh my gosh, where's your husband? And everyone else in the room but her knew. And it got super quiet. Wow. And I had to tell her. That was also the party that when I left, I was literally holding a pizza waiting for my car oh. And the valet, who was surprised that a black person was waiting. It was more logical to him that I was delivering him a pizza oh, God. than I was waiting for my car. Oh. I was wearing a dress with a purse And I go, I'm wearing a purse. I'm 45.
1: Oh, Jesus. How many
0: 45-year-old women <laughs> holding purses, wearing dresses, deliver pizza?
1: Oh, my God.
0: It's just, it was so funny, because yeah. that happened at the end of that cocktail party. I mm-hmm. was like, thank you, Jesus, I was given something uh-huh. stupid to laugh about. Because it was just yeah. funny. It's <laughs> like, go be stupid. And I was like, get my car, kid. And the other guy at the thing <laughs> laughed. The guy laughed like, and he goes, that was bad. That was bad. I'm like, yeah. yes, it was. Yeah, you think? <laughs> yes, it was. It was like, tell your friend Gary he's a moron. Yeah, but it was funny. Yeah. Leslie, how has
1: your writing changed since Scott's death, if at all?
0: Um, I think that when I deal with hard stuff, I am much less likely to pull punches. Mm -hmm. I never really did. Mm
2: -hmm. But, you
0: know, my style is like lots of words, lots of words, a thing. And I think that, A, I'm older and I don't have time for that anymore. But I think that also I've become a lot more concise because I know emotionally, I think, how to get to the heart of a thing faster than I used to. Hmm. Honestly, I think that I've become a better writer, but I think that, Hopefully, as long as my brain works, I hope I continue to. I hope I continue to become a better writer and funnier in an organic way that's not trying too hard. There was a review that said they thought that sometimes the humor was forced, and it's not. But they don't know me, and also people aren't used to people writing funny things about grief, so I can understand. That's valid for them to feel that way.
1: Right. Tell us about Camp Widow. For folks who don't know about this, it sounds like a marvelous thing. Is it a national
0: event? It is international now. Uh, Camp Widow is a program of an organization called Soaring Spirits International that's based in San Diego, and it was founded by a widow, Michelle Nefernandez, who's amazing. Michelle is this person who thought, I have all these feelings. Other people must have these feelings. How do I connect to those people? And it's become a series not only of around the world soaring spirits, communities where people have groups and meetups and talk and suggest therapists and stuff, but Camp Widow happens primarily in Tampa. San Diego and Toronto, and now there's some pop-ups, one's in Australia where her second husband is from. That's really cool because he's started this community, even though he is not a widow person
2: mm-hmm. and he
0: lives in San Diego now, his influence has started that there. Basically, it's three days. It's usually it's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of workshops and a dinner and parties and rituals. And, like, down here in Tampa where it's warm in March when they have it, there's a 5K and just opportunities to talk to people there's something about being in a room full of people where you're not weird, Mm
2: -hmm. I mean,
0: you're still weird, but where the identifying detail of your life is not weird because everyone else has it too. Right. And you just sit down, and talk, and say, so what happened to you? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: When was your loss? And everyone has a loss because there's no one going to go, oh, that's weird. And there's some people who aren't really ready to talk about it because there's people who've been widowed 10 years and people who've been widowed like a month. And they hear about this thing and they don't know what they need at the moment, but they go, I need to go. Mm-hmm. And there's one
1: coming up probably, right? Uh, you're, are you yep, speaking coming up? up? Are you speaking? I
0: am. Great. I yeah. am uh, signing some books, doing a couple workshops. I was a keynote speaker in Toronto in November, which was really cool. Uh-huh. And um, my mom got to go, which was neat.
1: Oh, that's great. Um,
0: because she's widowed as well. And we're going to go again as well in Tampa, to Tampa in March, which is a couple weeks after the book comes out. So that'll be a neat situation too. And all these people that have known me forever, I've been talking about this book for years and now it's actually here. Uh-huh. It's really <laughs> cool to be able to say, here's the thing. They're like, oh, you didn't make it up. So <laughs>
1: You didn't make it up. Leslie, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but I'll ask it formally. What do you want readers to take away from this book?
0: I want people to understand that grief is normal. We think in this society we're so smart that we can talk about sex and we can talk about our bowel movements and our sexual dysfunction and whatever it is in our aging and our knees, but grief is a thing that happens to everybody and there are no age restrictions for it. You can't stop it. Everyone is gonna lose somebody. And it's a thing that's so hard to talk about. So what I want to do more than anything is to get people to understand your grief is normal. Whatever that is grieving is normal. And it is normal not to know what to say. It's normal not to know how to be. It is normal to react like your world has been cut out from under you because it has. And just being able to talk about it and say the words, I am grieving, is going to make people uncomfortable, and I don't care. (laughs) I don't (laughs) care. I I don't like lead with it at parties or anything, but if we're having a discussion, we're going to have the discussion, you know? And I think that you would be more, you, the proverbial you, would be more helpful to the people in your life if you understood it, and if you didn't cut them off because it made you uncomfortable, or if you didn't try to gaslight them into pretending they were okay when they weren't okay.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Here's my last question. What's a good day for you now?
0: Uh, Most days are really great. A good day sometimes is when someone on Facebook will tell me a story about Scott I didn't know. Hmm. I love that. There's a woman I met, Tanya Mm Villanueva-Tepper, who is a 9-11 widow, who is Mm -hmm. now remarried and amazing, and she gives really great talks at Camp Widow. And she said that when her fiancé, Sergio, a firefighter in New York who was Mm -hmm. out of 9-11, that one of the worst things to her was that he wouldn't make more memories that his life ended at that moment. He was unable to make the memories. Mm -hmm. But she found that when she spoke to other people about him who were new to her and new to him and told stories, now they had a memory. They knew a story. They knew a thing about this guy. Mm. And so, alternately, Scott was like the life of the party. And in college, they called him Scotty Z, and he was like the head of everything. Mm. And my sister went to that college. I didn't. So they knew Lynn and they knew Scott. So people will email me and go, did I ever tell you about blah, blah? And I'll go, no, put it on Facebook, put it on Facebook. Because I love those stories because I love learning new things about the guy that I love. It's a gift. What a gift to have new stuff to know. It's amazing. Mm
1: -hmm. So you have lots of good days.
0: Most of my days are good at Uh this point. I mean, it's been almost five years. So, I mean, you have days every once in a while. I mean, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of our wedding Uh on February 28th. Uh So I'm a little more emotional than I usually am. And so there will be days also because the book, I'm talking about things, and I went back to therapy, which is wonderful. I went back to therapy months ago Mm -hmm. to prepare for this Mm -hmm. and to prepare for the having to talk about it and have people ask me questions like you and be able to reason these things and craft an answer for these things Mm -hmm. within very little time. So most days are good, Mm -hmm. but there's always going to be you're going to hear a song or you're going to turn a corner or you're going to pick up a thing and go, Oh, And you can't paper over those things and I try not to. I try to let myself feel what I'm feeling about those things. But then you kind of go, okay, what can I do with that? Uh, You honor the feeling. But I don't randomly cry really anymore. Or I'm able to laugh long and heartily about stuff and the relief and release of getting mad Mm -hmm. is really great because then you remember that this person was a person Mm -hmm. and not a saint or some person that's entombed in time, you know, that they were a person. They were a human who pissed you off, and that's healthy.
1: We've been speaking with Leslie Grace Streeter, veteran writer and entertainment columnist for the Palm Beach Post and author of a new memoir titled Black Widow, a sad, funny journey through grief for people who normally avoid books with words like journey in the title. Black Widow is set to be released on March 10th and it's available now for pre-order on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and at your local independent bookseller. All of Leslie's columns for the Palm Beach Post are available at the newspaper's website. That's palmbeachpost.com. And of course, be sure to check out Leslie's website, lesliegraystreeter.com. Leslie, thanks so much for being on the show and for writing this funny, smart, and moving book, Black Widow. Thanks, Leslie. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. If you have a moment, we'd love for you to explore our new service called Life Stories for the Ages. It's all about capturing the life story on video of someone you love before it's too late. Go to lifestoriesfortheages.com and check it out. The AgeWise podcast is produced and mixed by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaridis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.